probably vape too much though. Yeah. Like, they probably overdo it. Because like, I'm I mean, so I cool. tried the jewel and everything, and it was like kind of strong too. Like uh, I inhaled it, and I'm right. like, I started coughing. Now. I don't. Yeah, right. I don't smoke. I, I used to smoke cigarettes when I was in my late teens, early twenties. But uh, I don't know. When I started working at Walmart, um, I gave that up just because. Number one, I never really was a big smoker. Like it was, I, I worked in restaurants, and that's kind of what you do if you work in a restaurant. You know. Uh, yeah, exactly. That was just a very cultural norm for me. But um, in any case, uh, when I got to Walmart, they had a smokers lounge. And I despise being around other smokers, like just all the smoke and, you know, like take a quick story. When I went to, when I met my wife for the first time, or actually no, when I went to meet my wife's parents for the first time, uh, I went to her parents' house and they both were heavy, heavy smokers at the time. And chain smokers, chain smokers let me say, like, I, and I, I'm, I'm allergic, you know, even though I smoked a little bit, I mean, I was never like a... But it seems like other people smoke, like secondhand smoke, really like got in my eyes and stuff, and it just was really bothering me. Because anytime I used to smoke, I would smoke outside, and, but I was in the house, and it was just like smoke was like soaking into my skin, and I was like watching my mother-in-law now. At the time, it was my wife's, you know, my, I guess my girlfriend's mom, but uh, I was watching her like smoke her cigarette, and then she would put it out, and then light another one right behind it, like instantly, like every time. And not only that. It was either the fall or the winter when I went over there. I don't remember the exact month, but oh my God, the heater was on. And they have one of these gas space heaters that comes on, it's like a flamethrower. And so I'm sitting close to this thing and I'm sweating. And I'm also allergic to cats and they had cats. So I'm sweating, <laughs> I touch my head because of the sweat and my head starts breaking out in a rash because of the cat hair, you know? And I'm like, oh, just a total nightmare scenario for me. But yeah, um, the vaping thing is a real legit problem. But uh, I mean, they I, say, I mean, they say it's, it's um, healthier. I have mixed feelings on it. You know, I, there's not been enough, there's not been enough evidence, and not been enough study done to really say the cause of these deaths. I mean, are the ones that are dying dying from third party devices that they're not using properly? You know. I don't know. I mean, I know kids, underage people shouldn't be smoking anyway. Nobody should be smoking, but especially, you know, young people, they, they should, it's just not good for them. Uh, they say that they just do it because of the juice and everything. Right. So. Th those, you know, I've learned more about these e-cigarettes since this has become a national conversation. And those little devices put out a ton of nicotine. Like yeah. one little device or cartridge has like three packs of cigarettes worth of nicotine or something like that. And if you're smoking that every day, I mean, that's not, that's not good, you know, come on. So, I don't know, it's just, uh, but going back to the people that have died or gotten injured or ill from this, um, I'm not trying to, like, say that's not significant, because it is, but we just don't know what the contributing factors is. I was actually at Quiznos down the street yesterday, and they have a vaping store there. I've never been inside a vaping store, but... The Quiznos sub shop, and there's a there's an e-cigarette store right beside it. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they have all the flavors, but there's a national conversation going on now. They're going to ban the flavored, you know, e-cigs. And if I'm a business owner that invested in opening an e-cigarette business to sell my product to that's legal to adults, and this has become a problem, you know, this this thing out of left field. Remember, I talked about X factors in business. 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, a tough thing to swallow. I mean, because you're going to take away this merchant's, like, 90% of their inventory because their their product is flavored e-cigs. That's what they sell, you know. They're talking about taking getting rid of everything except for menthol and tobacco flavor, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I've got a friend that's a heavy smoker right now, and uh, I would rather him convert to the e-cig as a way to get away from the tobacco-based cigarettes and then try to go on the keep just re- keep reducing the nicotine, and then eventually get get rid of it. You know, because uh, he needs to get completely away from cigarettes. It's, it's, it's messing with his breathing and stuff. So, what else is going on? You got something? You look like you're about to say something. So, well, I had a flat tire last night. Bummer. So yeah. I tell you, I have the worst luck with flat tires. I have like flat tires like every every so often. I mean, I've had to change. It seems like ten flat tires in my life, and that's like ten too many. I asked my dad. My it, it actually got lucky. So I'm on the way to Clinton because I'm going to pick up my son. My parents had kept him, and uh, on the way there, I felt something that felt weird, and my eye, my like all my senses were on high alert because I, I felt like the car was dragging a little bit or something. But I didn't hear anything out of, out of the ordinary or anything weird. So I got to a Dollar General. I wanted to run in real quick to get a few things uh, that my wife, honeydew lists, you know, cat food and things like that. And so um, I get there, I park, and when I come out, I crank the car and start going, and I heard it then, the back passenger flat, well, tire was flat. So I had to park the car and I had to call my wife because I had left the tire at the house because I cleaned out the van. And so she had to come all the way to Clinton from the Mount Olive area to bring me my tires. So, yeah, so adventures and, you know, just life. You ever play that game of life? Yes. The board game? I love that. It's game. a lot like real life. I mean, because, you know, all of a sudden the bill just shows up on you and stuff like that. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Things like that happen. Yeah. So, um, anything else happening before we jump back into chapter five on uh, ethics? Everybody's excited. It's Wednesday. I know. Vilma, how are you, ma'am? Good. All right. For your interview today? The interview? It's not today. We're doing the interview. Uh, we're doing it on October 2nd. And it's the it's going to be with Patricia Delamotz. And she's a current student and business owner. And so I'll remind you guys the Monday before because I think that'll be September 30th. Yeah. And so I prefer you to go to the interview than go to the Wednesday class. So it's 11 o'clock. If you can't make it, I'm still going to hold class at 9 o'clock on Wednesday, that Wednesday the 2nd. But I would definitely prefer you to go to the interview because that's going to be a good opportunity to connect with a real entrepreneur, a real business owner. And we're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff like, you know, how she got started. She taught me about her challenges getting her first business loan. I mean, you know, and... Uh, it's just going to be really valuable and having to deal with trouble and troublesome employees like employees that lie, cheat and steal, you know, that kind of stuff. And so um, her, she's, she's now at the phase of her business where she's thinking about exit strategy, how she's going to sell that business and move on to the next uh, phase of her life. So really interesting to get her perspective on business, leadership, entrepreneurship. And so I'm excited to be able to sit down and talk to her. And we're going to try to do this once a semester. We're going to have a interview TED Talk type scenario where we sit down for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour and just go and talk to somebody that's, that's been through this situation. I've got uh, two people kind of in the wings. One of them 
Um, it's actually Miss Legrand's husband. I'm gonna talk to him again today. I'm pretty sure he's he's gonna do it. He's already kind of said he's gonna do it. But he owns a fire suppression or fire extinguisher company, and very successful with that. And I've got another guy I went to high school with that owns uh, a Highway 55 and a Papa John's. So I'd like to sit down and talk to him about his adventure. Yeah, Papa John's is good. So yeah. We always talk about food in my classes. Yeah. I don't know what, how that happens. So. What do you think is better, Starbucks or Dunkin'? Uh, Starbucks or Dunkin'? Yeah. You know, coffee. I'm pretty Starbucks loyal, but I'm not a big coffee drinker unless it gets cold outside. Once it gets cold, then I start drinking the coffee. But I just go for the, you know, black with maybe a little bit of cream, a little bit of like Splenda, and that's it. I like it, you know, kind of basic. So, All right. So on Monday, we were talking about ethics and corporate responsibility and sustainability. I'm gonna kind of go through and talk about some of the things we mentioned briefly to get us back to where we left off. Um, we said ethics essentially involves how we act, live, lead our lives, and treat others. Um, our choices and decision-making processes and our moral principles and values that govern our behavior regarding what is right and wrong are also part of ethics. So ethics is not a black and white you know, situation. It's very much a spectrum. There's a lot of gray in the middle, and we get to things called ethical dilemmas in life. Most of the decisions we make are automatic. We don't think about, you know, ethical considerations. We just make decisions based on our experiences, what we know, our, um, our worldview, how we act. But every once in a while, uh, we're faced with a dilemma. It's like, what should we do in this situation? And we have to really kind of process that a little bit differently. Um, and ethics, we talk about ethical relativism. I'll get to that in a minute. But this uh, next slide just talks a little bit about or demonstrates or illustrates the levels of ethical analysis. And so as managers, as people that want to be in leadership positions, you have to think about things in terms of not only your situation and how you view them, but also how organizations and systems view or, or societies view ethical situations. So, you know, People that get caught like stealing or embezzling funds from a company, they know as individuals it's wrong. You know, they know this is not the right thing to do. But uh, and then like they, if they filter that up through each one of these analyses, they know the company would agree. Yes, this is not the right thing to do. They know the system or society would agree that this is not the right thing to do. So this is a way to kind of have a multi or a triangulation. Uh, a multiple perspective of ethical analysis. So you can, like I always used to ask myself before I made a decision, what would my manager do in the situation or what would their manager say if they were faced with the same situation? And that can kind of help me uh, make decisions that I thought were the, the best choice at the moment. So with the information I had. Um, and so ethical dilemmas, this is a big one. Ethical dilemmas are these things that uh, are predicaments, they're conundrums, they're situations where you don't have a clear-cut answer, but uh, you, you kind of have to weigh out all the different variables and try to understand the unintended consequences of your choices because you don't always know what they'll be. Um, so really the dilemma comes from an unawareness of how to sort out and think through potential consequences of our actions or inactions. Yeah, we haven't had all experiences before, I've been to um, some chat forums online where they're trying to make a financial decision 
and they'll say, what will happen if I do this? And they'll post a question, and then other people that have been through this will chime in and say, well, this is what happened in my situation, and, you know, so for what it's worth. Um, and so ethical dilemmas often require us to uh, seek out some advice from others to get some feedback on that. And so we also talk about terminal values and instrumental values. Terminal values are these goals that we're trying to achieve, uh, these end states, you know, and the way we get there is through instrumental values, things like uh, being happy or uh, pursuing equality, wisdom, happiness, friendship, accomplishment, comfort, adventure, things like that. Um, some people like to go out and go on adventures a lot. Are any, is anybody adventurous in here? They like to go out and explore and travel? Anybody? Yeah. Really? I'm not very adventurous. We were talking about this last night. Like, my dad and I were sitting down after we we uh, bef just before we changed the tire. He came to the rescue. I could change the tire, but I was already in his hometown or my hometown. So um, you know, he came and helped me change the tire. But uh, we were talking before that about traveling because he had went to Georgia this past weekend, and he was saying that you know he just having to pack up and get ready and go and then get home and unpack. It's a lot, you know. And I said I agree. That's like. I'm not a fan of the process of getting ready to go, and I'm not a process, fan of the process of going, because when you get back, you still got tons of stuff to do, so I'm just not a big traveler at this moment in my life. Maybe if I was retired and didn't have anything else going on, that might be different, so. But um, in any case, these terminal values are our desired state goals, and these instrumental values are the things we do to get there. We also talked about util um, utilitarianism and universalism. Um, utilitarianism, the ends justify the means, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. What's good for, uh, for the many is better than what's good for the one. So if it inconveniences one person, that's okay because everybody else wins. The example I gave was, you know, if you're doing some type of study and uh, it causes harm to some humans, you know, these people were harmed by this study, but so many people are gonna benefit from it. Yeah, kind of like the story of Frankenstein. Anybody ever read this? Uh, Mary Shelley, she wrote that in a very short window. It was a contest. I want to say it was like just a, a week or so. She wrote the, the whole book of Frankenstein. I read it many years ago. Read that and Dracula. Very good stuff. But Frankenstein, his, his philosophy was that if I can do this thing, if I can bring this guy back from the dead, it may have some you know, moral and ethical considerations, but think of the benefit that will come from me being able to do this and the, the lives I can save by doing this, the ends justify the means, although they didn't, because it was horrific what, what the end result was. So the ends don't always justify the means. In universalism, we consider every individual in, this, in, the, in the situation. It's, uh, we don't always say the ends justify the means. We consider every individual's thoughts and feelings and how whatever we're talking about doing affects them personally. We talked about rights and justice. Um, we talked about the rights that we have in life. We have uh, legal rights and we have um, human rights or moral rights. Legal rights are given to us by our governments, but the human rights should be universal no matter where we go. The way of treating people with respect, not causing them harm, not stealing from them, things like that. Justice, we said, is also a gray area because justice isn't always just because just is relative, you know. You could commit a crime in one state and go to jail for 10 years. You could commit the same crime in another state, go to jail for one year. It really depends on a number of circumstances. Um, or you could commit a crime in another state and not go to jail at all. So 
it really does depend on all the culmination of the judge, the jury, the prosecutor, your defense, the state you're in, the jurors. I mean, it's very complicated. And so justice, uh, the, I've talked to people in the criminal justice system, lawyers, I've talked to law enforcement, and they all agree it's flawed, but it's the best system we've got, and they don't know you know, how to make it you know, better than what we've got. So I don't know how to make it better than what we've got. It's, a, it's really uh, one, of those, one of those tough, tough issues to, to figure out. And so then we get to where we left off. We talked about virtue ethics and ethical relativism briefly. Um, this is the slide I left off on. Virtue ethics are based on character traits such as being truthful, practicing wisdom, happiness, I'm sorry, happiness, flourishing, and well-being. It focuses on the type of person we ought to be, not on specific actions that should be taken. Grounded in good character, motives, and core values, the principle is best exemplified by those who, uh, the, whose examples show the virtues to be emulated. So being a good person, being a good example is what virtue ethics is all about. Ethical relativism is not really a principle to be followed or modeled. It is oriented that many quite uh, use quite frequently. Uh, I'm sorry. In its orientation that many use quite frequently, ethical relativism holds that people set their own moral standards for judging their actions. Only the individual's self-interest and values are relevant for judging his or her behavior. Moreover, moral standards, according to this principle, vary from one culture to another. So the example is, when in Rome, do as Romans do. I'm sure you've heard that before, correct? What does that mean? When in Rome, do as Romans do. Yeah, so wherever you're at, kind of go by that standard, you know. And so, um, yeah, you may have been able to do something in your country that was legal, but if you come over to our country, that same practice may not be legal over here. And so, yeah, just uh, win in Rome, you know, do as the Romans do. Um, and so this brings us to a additional new, new slide. We're gonna, this is new content we're talking about now. And so this is a cycle, the strategic orientation alignment or strategic organizational alignment. And so in the center, you see we've got our vision, mission, and values. The vision is who are we, what will we become? This is the long-term idea of where our company's going. The mission is what is our strategic purpose for operating? And then our values, what do we stand for and believe in? What standards can be used to evaluate and judge us? You have to stay closely aligned with these three things. That's why they're at the core of this illustration. If you get away from your values, what do we stand for or believe in? Let's say that your company makes a really nice quality product that people look at and say, man, this is a nice quality. You can tell the difference. You know, If you're holding a nice quality device or a quality piece of clothes, uh, clothing, you can tell that it's a nice piece. But let's say that you compromise your values and say, I'm going to go and get cheaper material or cheaper components and produce a cheaper product but still sell it for a premium price because people are already buying it at the price and they, they're looking for quality. What's going to happen very quickly is people are going to say, you know what, this piece of clothing doesn't hold up like it used to or they've gone downhill uh, or the quality is just not there. The value proposition has been compromised and then people don't believe in your company anymore and the people internally lose faith in it too because they have to hear the complaints from the customers. And so on the outskirts of this, we've got to understand what business are we in, 
who is our customer, what are our core comp I'm sorry, what are our core competencies, and what is our product or service. And so all these things you have to continually remind yourself of because it can be easy to get away from this idea. Um, we're actually going through a training here at Wayne. I've got mine doesn't happen until next year, but it's on customer service. And I'm thinking, you know, why would a faculty member or staff member have to go through customer service training? Why do you think that is? Yeah, get used to it. To know how to handle certain situations. What else? What do you think? Because we want every student to have a certain experience. We want you to be able to come to campus and be, if you need something, people don't just like shrug you off. We want you to be able to get the services that you need when you need them. And so customer service is a big part of education. Even though I guess you guys aren't our customers, you're actually our product because when we uh, share knowledge with you and you learn, you become a product of this institution. And so we want you to be able to have a good experience and customer service is a big part of that. Um, I guess, did, is there a survey that talks about customer service and like your experience? No, it was just asking us questions. There is a classroom survey that you do in every class toward the end uh, that talks about, you know, your classroom experience, was your instructor helpful? Yeah. yeah did you, did you, they communicate clearly, you know, that kind of stuff. And so anytime you get those surveys, for me, just put all awesomeness and then write how awesome I was, you know, that is, that's very helpful. I appreciate that. So, um, some other things. The, 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 I just, that jumped out of the chapter that were, that were key phrases or words to uh, give you kind of an ethical framework. Show respect for others. That's a big one. It doesn't cost a thing to do any of these things. Work towards a common good. You know, you may fundamentally disagree with somebody philosophically. You may disagree with their lifestyle. You may disagree with the way they carry themselves. You may don't, like, don't care particularly like the way they look or dress but you can find common ground with everybody. That's a big difference between leaders and managers. Managers see you, they, judge, they, can, they can be judgmental, they tell you to do things, but leaders try to bring people together and find common ground. And I've tried to do that my whole life, uh, especially in management roles, where I'll try to talk to somebody and find something we have in common. And uh, one of the reasons why I do the icebreaker activity at the beginning of all my classes, remember when you wrote your name and you wrote the one word that represents you, Tell me about the movies and books you like. All that is designed for us to all find common ground together. You know, and I learned that, you know, some of you like the same books, some of you like the same TV shows and movies. And, uh, you know, it helps me learn a little bit more about you. So treat all stakeholders fairly. Build a community and be honest. Be honest, I put it at the bottom because that's probably the most important. Do you know what I like to do when I make a mistake? I like to tell somebody immediately. Yeah. I, I like to tell somebody immediately that I've made a mistake. Do you know why? So it goes ahead and clears the air, and I can just own up to it exactly and say, you know, I made a mistake. Um, I had a boss, a couple of bosses ago, Dr. Carnegie. She was, she, I worked for her at the University of Mount Olive, and she, she was a great, still is a great leader, um, but she has a great management style too. She would come by my office every day and say, uh, like two or three words, she'd say, what are you working on? She would just ask me that, what are you working on? And uh, like every day, she wanted to know, like in a 60 minute, you know, 60 seconds, two minutes, what I was focused on that day. And she wanted to make sure I stayed focused on whatever that was. 
And then the second thing she would do to me constantly was challenge me to get, do more. Like, it didn't matter how, we, we broke records when I worked for her. Like, we would have massive enrollments. And then she would say to us, you know, what, can you, what else can you do? Or what more can you do next semester? You know, can you beat this, you know, number? I mean, like, you know, it's just, that's, that's like, kind of like irks your nerves a little bit, but it challenges you to grow even more. It's like, give me, give me a little bit more. What else can you give me, you know? What else, what more can you do? And so, but aside from those things, the one thing she told me, too, that has stood with me is she had this saying that if it's fixable, it's not a problem. If it's fixable, it's not a problem. And what that means is people freak out and they, they, they lose their mind over all kinds of things in business and in life. But if it's fixable, it's really not a problem. Like when I had the flat tire yesterday, I had a moment, I ain't gonna lie, you know, didn't, wasn't very happy about it, but it was fixable. It's not really that big a problem. I shouldn't let it ruin my whole evening, my whole day, you know, just get over it, it's, it's fixable. But yeah, being honest is so fundamental. I talk about integrity in all my classes. Integrity, you can't get it back. If you lie, somebody catches you in a lie, they may trust you after that, but it's, not, it's always going to be that shadow of a doubt. It's like, yeah. you know, they may trust you 99.99999, but there's always going to be that point zero 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 one percent that they're not quite sure because you lied to them in the past. And so, you know, integrity matters. It's, it's extremely important. So be transparent, be honest, even if it hurts you in the short term, to be honest. If you say, you know, I, I dropped the ball on this, go ahead and own it, move on. You know, if it's fixable, it's not a problem. My dad had a quote he told me last night, and I told him that I would share it with you. Uh, glean some wisdom from an old, old entrepreneur, let's see. He, uh, I wrote it down right here to share with you. He said, tell your students this, he said, success is built on inconveniences. Success is built on inconveniences. It's true, you know. It's not convenient to get up and go to school every day, right? It's not convenient to start out at the entry-level position in an organization. It's not convenient to save money to build up a, a bankroll to start your own business, right? It's not convenient to work nights and weekends or second jobs, but success is built on inconveniences. And he, I, I get that. Very, very wise saying so. All right. So this brings us to stewardship and servant leadership styles. Anybody have any questions or comments about anything we talked about so far? No? Okay. So stewardship is concerned with empowering followers to make decisions and gain control over their work. Yeah, that's what Dr. Carnegie did for me. She kind of was a steward. She watched over us. She didn't micromanage us. She checked in. She empowered us to do our own work. Now, if we didn't do the work or we did terrible work, it would be a different situation. But if you've got people that are good workers, that they're excited about getting things done and um, they want to do good work for you, let them do the work. Stay out of the way. You, you know, just let them go. Don't, don't stand over them and stand on their neck and micromanage them and give them a hard time. Let them do good work for you. Autonomy is a magical thing. Autonomy is this idea of giving people freedom to choose and do their own thing. If you give people autonomy that are, can handle it, that they, they don't need that supervision, they can do good work for you. They'll do better work if you give them that autonomy. Servant leadership involves selflessly working with followers to achieve shared goals that improve collective rather than individual welfare. There is a wealth of information on both of these styles. So number one, placing service before self-interest. The servant leader's primary concern is helping others, not receiving recognition or financial reward. This reminds me of another quote. 
you can ha- achieve all sorts of things if you don't care about who gets the recognition. That's a, that's a powerful quote. You know, if you don't really care about who gets the, the kudos for it, people will know, you know. People will know that you had something to do with it, but if you um, praise and lift up others, you will be you know, lifted up at some point. It's going to come around to you. Listening to others, servant leaders recognize the importance of listening to the ideas and concerns of stakeholders. They never attempt to impose their will on others. This aspect allows servant leaders to strengthen relationships, understand group needs and dynamics, and effectively allocate resources to improve the group's welfare. They inspire through trust. We uh, discussed earlier, ethical leaders must be trustworthy, yeah, being honest. That's also the first scout law, right? (laughs) And so it does not take much effort for servant leaders to be truthful because they usually have strong moral convictions. Uh, Working toward feasible goals, servant leaders realize that many problems cannot be solved by one person. They also tackle the most pressing issue facing their group. Yeah, tackle the hardest thing first, and that makes everything else seem a lot easier. But also on this, um, feasible goals. You know, there's this thing we teach, and it probably will come up in this class, but it's coming up now. SMART goals, has anybody heard about this? Specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound. And so these SMART goals, um, realistic that are uh, for the SMART goals, yeah, if you give somebody an unrealistic expectation, it demotivates them instantly. Like, if I said, you know, how many of these objects can you paint in an hour? And the answer, the real answer is four. That's what the real, it takes, you know, 12 minutes, 12 and a half minutes to do this. And, uh, or 15 minutes to do this. I'm sorry, my mouth's fuzzy early in the morning. But so 15 minutes to do one of these things. Well, I say, okay, four, I want you to give me 10. And you're just, you're just thinking, there's no way. I'm no way I can get 10. And so that whole hour that you're trying to get to the 10, you're, you're demotivated, you're upset, you know. But maybe the goal was just to get you to five or six instead of four. And at the end of the hour, you might have five or six. But you, you like, cause, like, a crisis, a mini crisis in that person's life by giving them an unrealistic goal. A better number might be, you know, six. You know, give them a 50% raise or can you give me five? And once they go to the five, then get the six, you know trying to encourage that extra productivity. And managers do that kind of stuff. Helping others whenever possible. Servant leaders lend a helping hand when the opportunity arises. An example is the district manager of a fast food chain who helps part-time employees flip burgers during a lunchtime rush hour. Another is director of a business unit who observes that a team is short a member and needs helping and meeting a deadline. The director joins the team for the afternoon to help meet the deadline. So jumping in when absolutely need is. That's a good uh, servant leadership thing to do. <laughs> so there is a dark side to organizational leadership. Um, not all leaders lead or model high standards or values. Seven symptoms of ethical or failure of ethical leadership provide a practical lens to examine a leader's short-sightedness. And before I go through the list real quick, um, you can use leadership qualities for ill gains or, or bad purposes. Um, there's been many cases throughout history and even recent history where leaders had a very charismatic demeanor. They were able to inspire people to come to them and then they used that power for self, you know, to gain like themselves personally self-dealing and they were able to uh, do things that were unethical or uh, amoral. So keep in mind that these leadership techniques uh, can be used for bad purposes. Um, 
probably the most like famous uh, example is Adolf Hitler. Think about if you've ever watched Hitler speak. Um, I don't understand German. Don't speak German, but I've watched a speech as an example, and you'll notice what he does. He screams at the people when he's speaking. And when you see somebody screaming, what happens? If you're around somebody screaming, what happens to you guys physiologically? Like the hair stands up on your neck, your eyes get wise, your ears perk up, right? And I'm watching this guy screaming, and he's slamming his fist on the podium. He's waving his hands around in this maniacal madman fashion. And, but he's also telling people exactly what they want to hear. He's telling the German people, you're not, people in the world think you're the worst in the world. I'm telling you you're the best. People in the world think you don't deserve anything. I think you deserve everything. He's telling these people this message, and he's indoctrinating them to buy into his hateful rhetoric. And before you know it, people are doing all types of atrocities to other human beings that before they were their neighbors, you know. And so, yeah, uh, this leadership model can be used for ill, ill means, and we have to be aware of that, and we have to see that so we can call it out when we do see it. So ethical blindness... They do not perceive ethical issues due to inattention or inability or, or lack of training. They don't know uh, what it means to be ethical. You know, they just, they just use it for their own, to serve their own ego. Ethical muteness, they do not have or use ethical language or principles. They talk the talk but do not walk the walk on values. Ethical incoherence, they're not able to see inconsistencies among the values they say they follow. They say they value responsibility but reward performance based only on numbers. Ethical paralysis, they are unable to act on their values from lack of knowledge or fear of the consequences of their actions. Yeah, the lack of knowledge thing really is a paralysis situation. <clears throat> Sometimes, have you ever met a mean manager? Yes. Yeah, you met a mean manager? I can tell you that mean manager-like phenomenon happens for a few reasons. Number one, some people are just mean. But number two... Some people uh, don't know what they're doing, and they have to use anger to mask the fact that they don't know what they're doing. And that's a true observation. Like, if you don't know the answer to something, like, it's best, these people think it's best to just get mad and act emotional, and so people leave them alone. But truth is, they just don't know the, the knowledge, they don't have the knowledge to do. What do you think of taking advantage of? What's that? Taking advantage of? What do you mean? Uh huh. Right. Okay. So they've been they've been walked on before. Yeah. So yeah, that could be the case too. Yeah, I think there is a big chunk of managers that are untrained, like, and they they have very limited training. Like, they may know how the organization works. They know may have know how to run the business, but they don't really know about managing people and all the things that we talk about in this class that goes into it. And don't get me wrong, I mean, everything we talk about may not be applicable in every situation, but it's good to have a good foundation to work from, and that's what this class does. And so ethical hypocrisy, they are not committed to the espoused values. They delegate, I'm sorry, yeah, they delegate things that are unwilling or unable to do themselves. Ethical schizophrenia, they do not have a set of coherent values. They act uh, one way at work and another way at home. And then ethical complacency, they believe they can do no wrong because of who they are. They believe they are immune. So these are some short, uh, shortfalls or pitfalls that managers uh, that, that are on the dark side of organizational leadership fall into. All right. And so this, uh, this is the role of culture and organizational alignments. 
culture does play a big part of what organizations are and how the ethical framework is formed. Um, if, like, as an example, if you've got an organization that goes out every weekend, the whole company does, they go partying, drinking, maybe doing some drugs and things like that, that really is not a healthy situation for a company to, to form a foundation. In fact, um, early days of Facebook, there was a very big party culture associated with the company, and they had to do some cleaning house to kind of separate. It's like, look, we're, we're beyond the college party phase of this company. We've got to, we're establishing ourselves as a actual company now, so we need to change the culture of this away from college party in a dorm to an actual uh, legitimate Fortune 500 type company. And so uh, customer requirements are the foundation of this. Leadership, environment, history, and resources all play a role in that. And then customer partnership. Um, the culture is at the center of this, but you see all the different things that interact with it. People, vision and strategy, structure, technology, the nature of the work, and the measurement systems all are a part of that matrix that, uh, that help fill out the culture and customer partnership. And then lastly, if all these things align, if you're looking out for your customer, if you're understanding what the customer needs, uh, you get to the customer satisfaction piece of it at the organizational group and individual level. At the individual level, you have performance, satisfaction, development, and growth. At the group, you have synergy, because all the parts are working together. Performance, effectiveness, and satisfaction. And then at the organizational level, uh, competition, market share, product and service quality, responsibility, environmentally, and, and to the community. So it really is a nice synchrony and a Zen thing when all these pieces work together. All right, also a part of this chapter was a discussion on corporate social responsibility. Um, I just posted some examples. So the GE Foundation gave $88 million to community and educational programs in 2016. That initiative was to show that, hey, we do give back. We are part of the solution to help our communities in which we serve. The um, 3M gives corporation funded $67 million in 2016 to focus on community and environmental environment, along with educational initiatives boasting students' interest in science and technology. Apple was named by environmental organization Greenpeace as the greenest tech company in the world over three years because of the firm's packaging. It's manufactured with 99% recycled paper products. Walt Disney's social mission to strengthen communities states that by providing hope, happiness, and comfort to kids and family who need it the most, the Walt Disney Company donated more than $400 million to nonprofit organizations in 2016. And then the last one, Virgin Atlantic's Change is in the Air Sustainability Initiative states its mission as environment, sustainable uh, design and buy buying, and community investment. This firm has since 20, 2007 reduced total aircraft carbon emissions by 22%. That's, that's a major thing. It has partnered with uh, lots of tech to develop low carbon fuels for f the future. <coughs> Virgin Holidays donates 200 million pound annually to the Brandon Center for Entrepreneurship Caribbean to support young entrepreneurs in Jamaica. So these are just some, a few of the many examples of how companies try to give back and try to be a positive impact into their, into their communities and for the world. Um, any questions on any of that so far? All right, and so I believe this is the last slide, yeah. So just to talk about this a little bit, this is the global stakeholder management issues and ethical concerns. 
we've seen a slide like this previously, but now we're looking at it from an ethical perspective. So managing ethical concerns is in the center. <clears throat> and from that center piece, it says, observing home and host countries' legal and moral codes. <coughs> and it gives you some examples. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, workplace safety, product safety, responsible marketing, and advertising standards, moral ecological practices. And so with this uh, kind of a beginning piece, the center, we try to understand if we're doing business abroad, we need to understand what their requirements are in order to make sure we're complying with that, that foreign piece of it. One moment. Okay. And then outside of that, you see environmental issues to the bottom left. Um, you don't want to do anything that compromises air, water, and land pollution, toxic waste and dumping, industrial accidents, use misuse of natural resources, restoring national environment. <coughs> um, you have uh, other environmental issues uh, from the economic, exchange rates, wages, income distribution, balance of payments, import and export levels, taxes, interest rates, um, GNPs and transfer pricing. From the political spectrum, the government's media, instability, local laws, antitrust issues, military, foreign policy. All these are aspects that you must consider when looking at doing business abroad with a uh, lens of ethics. Um, the last two are technological. Yeah, making sure you're not violating intellectual property protections, licensing, agreement fees, technical resources, alliances, and sharing of technology. And then last, the um, social and labor environmental issues, the values, attitudes, customs, religious, political, social class practices and norms, labor unions, availability of skills, expatriate requirements, needs, workplace safety. <clears throat> so as you can see, there's a bunch of considerations you need to be able to make when you consider doing business abroad through an ethical framework. So, all right, this concludes chapter five in regards to ethics. Um, as I mentioned earlier on Monday, I'm not going to be here Friday. Class will still be held. We're going to have a film for you guys to watch. Miss Hinkle, Lindsay Hinkle, is going to be here as the substitute. Uh, but if you guys have any questions in the meantime, you can email me. I'm still going to be on campus in the early afternoon, probably around 11. Um, but don't forget about your homework with Chapter 5. I did send out a good email yesterday. Be sure to check out that email. It's, it's called uh, Weekly Notes. It's got notes in there for you guys to check out. Uh, there is a couple of attachments. One of them in specific is the weekly notes PDF, so check that out. And if you guys do have any questions or anything at all, just let me know, okay, guys? Safety fair starts now. It's, it's been going on in WLC. You should stop by there and check out some of the vendors. There's a, a lot of uh, probably free samples, some food, and they're going to have uh, some activities and things. So go check that out. All right, guys, I'll see you again soon. Thanks.